You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. It's our Blue Friday episode. Proud to be joined by Nick Lee. Today's episode is brought your way by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code Locked On, and you'll get $10 off your next order. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. Since the 2017 season, no quarterback has thrown more touchdowns than Russell Wilson. He's made the Pro Bowl each of the past three years, finally earned an All-Pro selection last year, and recently was selected the number two player in the NFL's top 100 list by his peers, only Ravens MVP quarterback Lamar Jackson in front of him. And yet, as we have seen year after year after year, Somehow, some way, Dangerous Wilson continues to find ways to improve each year, and it sounds like he is not at his peak yet. And he always makes those, you know, he, he always seems to be self-driven. And he, he had another quote today, my best years are ahead of me. I'm the best I've ever been, but I'm only at 70%. When I step on the field, I want the other team to know they're in trouble, end quote. And I love that last line. And that 70%, man. If what we've seen in the last couple of years is 70% Russell Wilson and we get 100% Russell Wilson, I mean, just looking at stats because I'm a numbers nerd, you know, 4,100 yards and 31 touchdowns, that's 70% of 5,300 yards and 40 touchdowns, which would certainly put him at the MVP. Uh, finally, at least get him some freaking MVP votes, first of all. <laughs> but yeah, 100% Russell Wilson, if, if, we've only, if we're still just 30%, or if we're still 30% short of that. I think that uh, the Seahawks fans would be pretty happy. We're talking probably bust in Canton, talking an MVP award, probably another ring. It's pretty exciting stuff for the whole NFL. I mean, it's just good for the NFL to have a player like Russell Wilson in it. It's interesting. We're throwing out those projected stats, over 5,300 yards passing and 40 passing touchdowns. And then you start to think about the offense that the Seahawks run that has always been a run-centric scheme. And that has upset fans over the past few years. And what we're constantly hearing from people on Seahawks Twitter is, when is Pete Carroll going to let Russell Wilson cook? That has been a theme for several years. Are we going to open the offense up? We've got one of the best quarterbacks in the land. Let's let him throw the football and make plays. And yet, over the past few years, they've continued to be a run-centric team. They're going to run the ball a lot as long as Pete Carroll's on the sideline. They're going to have a balanced approach on offense. And I found the comments from Russell Wilson today to be interesting. And obviously this jumped out first things first that he said, let's treat every quarter as the fourth and that that's his mentality. Obviously that is something that a lot of fans were upset about last year. Even though the Seahawks went 11 and five, you got to consider how many games they won where they were trailing at halftime. They really struggled to put teams away in the first half, and they had one of the lowest point differentials for any playoff team in the league. It's really hard to sustain that type of success year after year, and they've got to be better in those early quarters, which has, again, led to those arguments, let Russell Wilson make those plays early in the game. Yeah, and you, you know that with an NFL player, their mentality is win every quarter, win every quarter, one and zero. You know, treat every quarter like every quarter like it's the fourth. Treat every game like it's their last. That whole thing. That's just athlete talk, especially with Russell Wilson. We both can agree, Russell Wilson as a he's not the most quotable, story driven player. He he's usually pretty close to the vest. To his credit, 
very respectful, keeps it under wraps. And so that doesn't give us a lot of juicy content, but that also makes, that doesn't rock the boat in the locker room. He's very, very well-spoken and very, very, you know, processed about how he gives answers. And yeah, we, we've seen that open up a little bit this past off season for sure. And, and of course, Seahawks Twitter is, is, has been set ablaze by those comments of he wants to treat every quarter like the fourth. And, and he says that's kind of his, men, his mentality and he believes in finishing strong and, and he wishes that, you know, they'd rather have to be in the fourth quarter. You could, you could start it. You'd think that they want to have that good start earlier in games. And, and lots of people, especially on social media, maybe thought that was a shot at Pete Carroll. I disagree. I think that's just his mentality. But when you look at the numbers, Corbin, his, his splits, his career splits in quarters, his career splits overall, he has the least amount of pass attempts in the first quarter. And the most are actually, interestingly, in the second quarter and the second most in the fourth quarter. So obviously, and that, that's also true for the 2019 splits. In 2019, he only, he only attempted 94 passes compared to 152 in the fourth quarter. So in both scenarios, his career numbers and last season alone, the first quarter he attempts the least amount of passes. And so I think that's where some of the discomfort is coming from from the fan side of point of view. It's interesting that, you know, going off what Russell Wilson said today, he said the Seahawks were 56 and oh when they had the lead by halftime. Just to kind of put that in perspective, it's actually 57 and oh when they're up by four points or more at halftime since he came into the league, which is just a ridiculous stat by itself. And so it does point to that key of getting ahead. Make sure that you have the lead going in the second half. And that wasn't something that the Seahawks were very good at last season. But I do agree with you that people saying that he was taking a shot at Pete Carroll, you have to dig deeper into the press conference with some of the other things that he said. Everybody saw that, let's treat every quarter as the fourth quote, and immediately thought, oh man, he's going after Pete Carroll. But he eventually said, the reality is, I want to win games. That's all I really care about, going out there and finding ways to win. And he also mentioned that doesn't always mean just me chucking it around. And so I think that that is another quote that's worth noting here, is that he agrees with Pete Carroll that we don't have to throw the ball 50 times every single game to give us the best chance at success. We don't have to suddenly go out here and run a Mike Leach air raid offense. They don't have to reinvent the wheel, but I think you can have both these worlds together. You can make the argument that we can be more aggressive passing the football early while still employing a run-centric offense. I think you can have both those. They don't have to be exclusive. No, they don't. And the whole lit Russ Cook thing, which, I, again, like a lot of things, I'm kind of – I try not to be an extreme person. I try not to be an overreactive person. I, I, I think there's some truth to lit Russ Cook, but I'm not willing to go, yeah, air raid Mike Leach. Because when you know, let's think about basketball. You know, some of the some of the players that that have put up a ridiculous amount of points, and and especially when they're trying to put a team on their back. When you got like, say, like another Pacific Northwest example, Damian Lillard for the Portland Trailblazers going off right now, and credit to him. But he's literally carrying this team, and they're barely winning games. He's throwing up 50, 60 points, but they win also just fine when he's putting up thirty to twenty to twenty five, thirty five points a game. So. And they don't have to. Damian Lillard doesn't have to score 50 points a game for the Blazers to win. That's just what happens sometimes. So I, I, while well, I believe that, yeah, the Seahawks could probably do well in letting Russ chuck it a few more times per game and and giving him a few more opportunities. I'm not willing to just go way on the other end because that's just 
that's just not a good philosophy. And I think what's worked for Seattle has been the balanced attack. And with, with the splits, like like I mentioned, it, clearly that they're 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 coming out in the first course and let's establish the run. Let, let's let's kind of feel out the opponents and and you know what? If the Seahawks win a game where Russell Wilson attempts the ball 15 times a game, that's it. But they win by 20. I don't give a crap. They're winning games, just like Russell Wilson said. It's about winning. So really, I don't care if he has 3,000 yards. I don't care if he has 2,000 yards. I don't care if he has 5,000 yards. As long as they're winning the ball game, that's what matters. Yep, that's the bottom line for Russell Wilson. He wants to get the W. That's the biggest deal. We need to win games. He doesn't care how they get it done. But statistically, it points to the Seahawks should be letting him do a bit more early in games. Again, the idea that some people on Twitter believe the Seahawks should just be, for the most part, abandoning the run, that's not necessarily true either. They could have a more pass-happy offense while still having plenty of balance and employing the run game that Pete Carroll likes to have out there to wear down opposing defenses. You can have both those worlds. And so I think they can be more aggressive and they can still run the system that Carroll wants to run. And you're going to get outstanding results from Russell Wilson as he's done throughout his career. When we come back in the second quarter, we're now a couple practices into the 2020 season. We're going to check out the depth chart here. And we're going to look at some positional groups that maybe have a few players competing for a starting spot. You're listening to Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. As an avid weightlifter and distance runner, I'm always looking for an edge when it comes to nutrition, seeking delicious, healthy protein bars without the crazy additives. Since being diagnosed with celiac disease, my options have been pretty limited until now. Enter in the Built Bar, a low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, gluten-free protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Built Bar now comes in 18 mouth-watering flavors, including six new delicious flavors such as caramel brownie and cookies and cream. My all-time favorite is peanut butter brownie, which is 20 grams of protein, just 3 grams of sugar, and 3 grams of net carbs. Since I had my first Built since I had my first Built Bar, I never go without one when I hit the weight room or go for a jog. All Built Bars are 100% chocolate, nut and gluten-free, soft and easy to chew, and don't have the nasty aftertaste of competing protein bars. Sound too good to be true? Go to BuiltBar.com and build your own custom box with your choice of flavors using the code LOCKEDON for $10 off. You will also receive a free cooler with your first purchase while supplies last. So what are you waiting for? Change your workout game by going to BuiltBar.com and entering code LOCKEDON for $10 off. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me for our Blue Friday show, Nick Lee. It's time to talk the 22-man starting lineup for the Seahawks. And we know there's been some turnover. They've got some new players they brought in via trade and free agency, a few high-profile players that left. One of them in particular, Jadevian Clowney, still has not signed with anyone as of this show. And so there is some turnover on this roster Let's talk the depth chart now on offense for the Seahawks. I think it's pretty obvious who is going to be under center for Seattle this year. Russell Wilson coming back, as we just talked last quarter, he thinks he's at 70% of his potential, still believes he has a lot of room to grow as a player. That is a scary proposition for the rest of the NFL. But there are a bunch of other positions on this offense where there may be some uncertainty about who's going to be the starter. And I think it's worth talking about the running back position right now because I think Chris Carson is the guy. Chris Carson has been a 1,100-plus yard rusher each of the last two seasons. 
He's supposedly healthy. He's right now dealing with some family issues, which is why he's not at camp currently. But Carson's going to be the guy. But you got to wonder if Carlos Hyde being here these first couple days, maybe that gives him a chance to cut further into that workload, at least early in the season. we got to remember, Carlos Hyde rushed for 1,000 yards last year. He's not some 34-year-old has-been who is his best years are behind him. He set a career high in rushing yards last year with the Houston Texans. So Carlos Hyde, you know, coming off of that season and signing with the Seahawks, a winning organization and, and a running, running the ball kind of team, probably is thinking to himself, hey, I can, I can get mine. I, I can get some numbers here. And, I mean, obviously we need to be sensitive to what Chris Carson's going through, and it's not like he's been injured and, and – or he has been injured, but that's not necessarily why he's not on the field. But, you know, he, Carlos Hyde absolutely will take advantage of the situation and, and, uh, and working with the ones and, and make an impression because he's fighting for snaps. He's fighting for carries. The, those two are directly going to influence the other in the amount of carries they get because there's only so many carries to go around. So Carlos Hyde, don't, don't count him out just with his pedigree. You know, he's, Looks like, I don't know, seven years, six, seven years in the league. And he's, he's got a 1,000-yard season under his belt. So I certainly would not count out Carlos Hyde. And, and also you have some young, younger running backs, Travis Homer and DJ Dallas, who are also healthy and, and also can, can offer some things. And I know DJ Dallas is impressed early as well. So I'm not saying DJ Dallas is going to challenge for the starting spot. But right now, the, long, the, the more that Carlos Hyde is in there with Chris Carson absence, the more he's going to get exposed to the first-team reps and – the more I think the coaches are going to like what they see. It's kind of like the tight end position, really. You've got two starting caliber running backs there, and when Rashad Penny returns, whenever that time is, you've got three of them. And based on what Pete Carroll has said, maybe down the road, maybe DJ Dallas can be a starting caliber back in this league. They love the depth they have there. Tight ends, very similar. Kind of a different situation, though, in the sense that you've got a much older player that's atop the depth chart right now, a 35-year-old Greg Olson, who still looks very spry on the field, watching him run routes the first couple of practices this week. Still very athletic. He's a matchup nightmare down the seam, very soft hands, but not known for his blocking. Will Disley's come back. He's ready to play. It's incredible to me, again, that he's been able to return for the start of training camp, and he's participating, catching passes, just a phenomenal recovery. The amount of work that he put in, coming back from an Achilles tear, and he had a torn patellar 10 in his rookie season. So hopefully he's going to get over that injury bug, but you really have 1A and 1B with those two players at the tight end position. And then, of course, there's Jacob Hollister, who all he did in 11 games last year was finish third on the team in receiving yards. So I look at this as an offense. A lot of times you talk about receiver one, receiver two, receiver three. I think the base offense for Seattle has two tight ends on the field with the talent and depth they have at that position. And I think Will Disley and Greg Olson complement each other, like you mentioned. Olson not necessarily the nastiest blocker, but he can he's certainly no Jimmy Graham either. He he can get down and dirty when he wants to. But uh, Will Disley, I think, is the more complete tight end that the Seahawks like. I'm not saying that he's an overall better tight end than Greg Olson right now, but give give Will Disley a healthy 16 games, and he's a Pro Bowl tight end. That's my opinion. So he, he is getting up to that level of Greg Olson if he can just, dang it, stay healthy. So those two on the field, I could definitely see um, some, some ways where they can make that work and, and make that a nightmare. And we even talked a little while ago um, about how that's, that's going to be a matchup nightmare where they can move them around, especially Jacob Hollister and what they can do with him. Having three tight ends that are very different, but also you know still tight ends, still pretty big. That could be a huge advantage. And talking about receivers as well, of course, 
our, our WR1, Tyler Lockett, that's, that's not up for debate, at least not this year. Maybe with another leap by DK Metcalf, we'll have to talk next year about who really is number one on the depth chart. I'm hoping that becomes a debate because I'm really excited for what DK Metcalf can do. But clearly right now it's Lockett number one. Metcalf number two, but Corbin, the wide receiver number three is the one that's up for debate, and we'll get into this in a little bit. You know, that, that room with Phil Dorsett, David Moore, John, John Ursua has now re, re-entered the chat. Freddie Swain. <laughs> uh, Freddie Swain. Heck, Josh Gordon. Who knows? That wide receiver three actually probably could be one of the more fascinating races in, in camp. And there's going to be a few races along the offensive line as well. We're going to break down one of them in the third quarter, but one thing that we know is not up for debate. Dwayne Brown is going to be the left tackle, and he looks fantastic, by the way, which isn't surprising, uh, being the veteran that he is. You knew he was going to come to camp in fantastic shape. So he's going to be ready to go at left tackle. You've got Mike Upati, maybe Phil Haynes at left guard, center. You've got Finney going against Posick, potentially. That's what it's looking like now through the first few days of camp. Damian Lewis looks to have that right guard spot already under locks. We need to see what he does on the field when they actually are playing full contact football, tough to evaluate offensive linemen, first few practices of camp, but really encouraging stuff so far for the rookie out of LSU. And then, of course, Brandon Shell seems pretty cut and dry that he's going to be the starter replacing Jermaine Effetti at right tackle. Let's look at the defense now because I feel like offensively, the Seahawks have most of their positions filled. We have a general idea who's going to be the starter. I think on defense – it might be one of those cases where there are more players that are going to play on the field. They're going to rotate guys more often, but it does seem like they have a pretty set plan with what they want to do, particularly with that front seven. We talked that linebacker group, but defensive line so far, we've seen Rasheem Green starting at the five tech and then Benson Mayoa playing that Leo defensive end position. There's always the potential for Bruce Irvin to play some snaps there as well. But without Daryl Taylor and Alton Robinson really getting the meaningful reps so far, Taylor's been out, and Robinson didn't necessarily come to camp in the best of shape, at least according to Coach Pete Carroll. And I can tell you, I was surprised with how big he looked on the field. It looked like still obviously in great shape, a big guy, but um, listed at 264, it looked like he was a little bit heavier than that on the field. So they've got to get all these guys back in shape. But I'm really fascinated to see what this defensive line ends up looking like as training camp progresses because you've got a lot of new faces that some of them are old faces returning, but you have a lot of players coming in that have a chance to make an impact for a group that under-impressed last year. Yeah, and we're all hoping that that sack total goes up, even without Jadavion Clowney, the, the big elephant in the room, missing, at least for now, <laughs> and now Everson Griffin gone. So we very well could re- deal with the reality that this is what we're going to roll with as far as the pass rush group on the defensive line, five tech. I think Rasheem Green certainly deserves first looks, you know, the sack, quote, leader <laughs> from last year with four sacks. I mean, give him credit. He, he was productive in his second year, and he, he made a big leap. And if he can make another leap, in year three, he could turn into a very good five-tech defensive end. Of course, the two tackle spots are pretty set. Jaron Reed and Puna Ford, not really a huge threat to their positions right now unless they bring in some, from, you know, stick, meat, dead horse, <laughs> a Damon Harrison or, or Marcel Darius or one of those veteran tackles. And, of course, like you mentioned, Ben Samoa at Leo. Um, and let's talk linebackers, Corbin, because I know you are foaming at the mouth to talk about this, and, and it is one of the more fascinating, if not the most fascinating, dilemma good problem to have on the Seahawks is how are they going to divvy up the, t- the snaps with how much talent they have at linebacker especially of course Bobby Wagner 
middle linebacker, not an issue, not a debate, future Hall of Famer, perennial All-Pro. That's that's He's not going anywhere. But on both sides of him, we have a Sam linebacker, Bruce Irvin, taking those snaps so far. And he's been versatile, like, like you mentioned, can slide into Leo if something happens to Mayo or they like a better matchup with Irvin. And then, of course, the first-round rookie, Jordan Brooks, and K.J. Wright, the, the Pro Bowl outside linebacker. And, and there's just so many talented linebackers on this team. I would argue that the Seahawks have the most talented linebacker core in the NFL. How are they going to divvy up all these snaps? Well, Rob and I talked about this on Thursday's show. And right now, obviously, you expected this early with these being OTA-style practices when they first get on the field where they're not really doing much contact. They just have helmets on, no shoulder pads. You're seeing a lot of routes on air, doing some uh, defensive plays on air. The drills are are pretty basic. It's all about the fundamentals at this point that you're going to see the experienced guys getting the reps. So you're going to see Bruce Irvin playing the Sam. And and it's becoming apparent early that when Pete Carroll said that's what they plan to do with him, that's the position he played his first four years in the league playing for the Seahawks before he left in free agency. It's very clear that he wasn't joking. That's where they want him to play is that Sam linebacker spot. And he's still going to play some at the Leo position on pass rushing downs, but they just love his versatility. They love the fact that he has played in this scheme. He understands all the plays. He can help some of these young guys behind him. And that versatility is still a fantastic athlete at 33 years of age. And so right now he's getting the snaps there. And K.J. Wright avoiding the pup list after shoulder surgery, the ever-so-reliable veteran out there for pretty much every snap during these first couple of practices. Looks really excited to be out there on the field with the young guys too. So you've got these reliable veterans there. It's going to make it tougher for players like first-round pick Jordan Brooks to be able to find a way into the lineup. But that being said, until we actually see these guys out there hitting other players and playing legitimate football, it's hard to assess his position. If Brooks goes out there and really lights it up once they start getting shoulder pads on, then he's going to have an opportunity to start stealing some of those reps. I think right now, to just to for lack of a better term, I think they owe it, quote, to Bruce Irvin and KJ Wright to throw him out there on each side of Bobby Wagner. But yeah, Jordan Brooks will certainly be coming in hot and I think that he'll be coming in hot er, sooner rather than later and Corbin let's let's address cornerback now of course one side you have Shaquille Griffin fresh off of his Pro Bowl his first of hopefully many Pro Bowl seasons slowly improved and I think he's now arriving at what Seahawks fans hoped he would be when the Seahawks drafted him out of UCF and opposite him is a bit more in question and not necessarily for injuries not necessarily for abilities um, but Quentin Dunbar still technically not in camp yet, but also not on the commissioner's exempt list anymore. So in the in theory, Quentin Dunbar could be playing for the Seahawks before Week One against the Falcons, and so everyone kind of assumes that Quentin Dunbar will start over Trey Flowers. But as Pete Carroll always says, always compete. And Trey Flowers had some flashes of really good play last year. Obviously, he had some some clunkers, as some corner some most young cornerbacks do. But it, it, I'm not sure. I think that it's still pretty much Quentin, Dun- Quentin Dunbar's job to lose. But it sounds like, Corbin, you're a bit more of that the, the margin is not as big as people think. Yeah, it is something that we can maybe argue at a later time because I've talked a lot about Trey Flowers looking back at his film last year that I thought he was better than a lot of fans have given him credit for. But certainly right now, Dunbar, you would hope with 
the fact you traded for him and he was so good last year for Washington. You would hope that he's going to be that guy across from Griffin and that you can still find a way to get Trey Flowers some snaps as well. But uh, that there's going to be a competition there, especially when Dunbar gets in the field with everything that's gone on in his life up to this point. He's going to have to go out there and get make sure he's in shape, make sure he gets this new scheme down. He's a little bit behind with the rest of this unit. And so that's something to keep in mind there. But there really aren't too many question marks in the secondary. As long as these guys all stay out of trouble and they are there, nobody gets COVID. I mean, they've got Griffin, the Pro Bowl quarterback. Quandry Diggs played an all-pro level in five games last year after they traded for him. Then, of course, Jamal Adams coming in, a guy that can do a little bit of everything at strong safety. So there's no doubt who the starting two safeties are there. And obviously we could throw in the nickel as well, but this is still going to be a team that runs a lot of four, three defense when you have the linebacking talent they do. So you're going to have four defensive backs out there quite a bit of the time on this defense. They do have more flexibility now though, with the upgrades, potentially Dunbar, obviously Adams being brought in as well. When we come back for the third quarter, we're going to dive into four of these positional breakdowns we just talked about. We're going to play a little bit of this or that, looking at two players that offer different skill sets that will be competing for a spot on the Seahawks. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me for our Blue Friday episode, Nick Lee, it's time to play a game. We're going to play this or that. And what we're going to be doing, Nick, we're going to look at four competitions that are already underway at the VMAC for the Seahawks positional battles between two players or three in some cases that offer different playing styles and different skill sets. Let's start with that number three receiver spot. Likely a player that is going to be playing a lot out of the slot position. So here's our options here. Philip Dorsett or John Ursua or David Moore. And three very different players, Corbin, for sure. Philip Dorsett was brought in certainly because he's a burner. I mean, that that is the the word that comes to mind when I watch Philip Dorsett. Obviously, he's had a somewhat disappointing career for a 29th overall pick in 2015, you know, when you're playing with one of the best quarterbacks of all time um, for, for your last few, three seasons here, since he went to new England in 2017, he didn't have a, a 400 yard season in new England in three years. His career high is 528 yards with the Colts in 2016. So obviously production wise a bit disappointing, but you have the four, three, three speed and he's five ten, about 192 pounds. So when you're talking about needing a receiver to take the top off a of defense, Philip Dorsett is that prototypical guy. You'd like him maybe be a bit bigger, but a 4-3-3 speed, that'll make up for some differences there. And and I think the biggest difference, Corbin, is that between Dorsett and Ursua. I think uh, Ursua, obviously a bit smaller, 5'9", 182, a 4'6", 140, if I, if I read that correctly. And so br- pretty big difference in 40 times. But I think we can both agree, Corbin, that, that of course, while Dorsett has the speed, and maybe some hand, some, some better hand skills. Ursua is a just a technical perfectionist when it comes to route running, because that's that's how they taught it at Hawaii. Nick Rolovich was really really talented at, at teaching running routes at at Hawaii, and Ursua is maybe one of the better route runners on this team. A couple months ago, I would have said Philip Dorsett is probably your front runner because you just signed into a one year deal. You know he's got the first round pedigree with that elite athleticism, but. Seeing what John Ursua has done 
the first couple practices here. He came off the COVID-19 list after a false positive. He made a spectacular one-handed catch. And obviously, again, they're running routes on air. We have to see what he looks like once we step up the game on Sunday and they're practicing with shoulder pads on and there's a lot more contact. The physicality of the sport starts to return. Real football out there. But just, you know, the craftiness that he brings out of the slot soft hands and I think the underrated thing for John Ursua if you go back and watch his Hawaii film and even the preseason for Seattle last year as a rookie he has underrated ability to create after the catch so his craftiness isn't just as a route runner it's also with the football in his hands and so I think John Ursua might be the most natural route runner out of the slot that this team has and that gives him a very good chance to make a big leap after making just one reception last year and becoming that number three target. And then, of course, David Moore. We've talked about this time and time again. You have seen flashes where he's looked like he potentially could be a really good NFL receiver, and then he disappears for two games. And some of it's been on him, you know, performance-wise. He's just had games where he just hasn't been able to get open. The ball hasn't gone his way. And some of it, I think, falls on the coaching staff, too, because they've kind of made him a one-trick pony as a downfield threat. And I think He's a player that if you could just build in some plays to get in the football quickly so that he can use his after-the-catch skills, I think you would see a more consistently productive player. So I think all three of those guys are going to be a lot of fun to watch here in coming weeks to see who emerges as that number three target, as you mentioned. They're all dramatically different. If I had to make a prediction right now, though, I think Ursua is going to surprise people. I think he's the guy. Like you mentioned, don't sleep on David Moore. I, I mentioned just Dorsett and Ursua just because of their huge differences. But David Moore, technically, if you look at the last two years, has had a better career than Philip Dorsett. 746 yards compared to 687 for Dorsett and actually has a seven approximate value the last two years and Dorsett at a six. So pretty similar, but slightly the, the hand slightly goes to David Moore. My prediction is, is probably still Philip Dorsett just because of that elite speed. And that would be a nice... I mean, not that Tyler Lockett or TK Metcalf aren't fast themselves, but having just that that shifty, deep threat to go along with a, a gargantuan and DK Metcalf and just an all pretty much everything you want in a receiver in Tyler Lockett, I think that Philip Dorsett would be a nice mix just to be an, uh, just a burner. Let's talk offensive line now. Going into camp, I thought B.J. Finney was going to be the heavy favorite, and maybe he still is, to be the starter at center. But I do find it interesting – that Ethan Posick has been getting some snaps here the first few days at center with the first team. And obviously the one thing that he's got on BJ Finney is he has experience in this scheme. He's now in his third year playing with Mike Solari. And I think another thing that maybe we have downplayed that we, we have overlooked to this point, we haven't really seen Ethan Posick playing his best position, his most natural position in the NFL because Justin Britt has been the rock at the center position. And Joey Hunt stepped in last year because Posick was on injured reserve after Britt got hurt. And so he hasn't really had a chance to play his best position. And this might be his greatest opportunity to go back to that center spot and really give BJ Finney a run for his money. It's really now or never for Ethan Posick for sure. And Looking at measurables between the two, B.J. Finney, 6'4", 318. Ethan Posick, 6'6", 320. So Ethan Posick is slightly bigger specimen and also has a, a slightly longer arms. But really, the, the differences are pretty minute besides the height. Um, but, yeah, so would you rather have scheme in, an ex- scheme in the, the system 
or excuse me, experience in the system or just overall experience? Because BJ Finney has played more snaps, but Ethan Posick is familiar with the system. So it's kind of one of those, which one would you rather have kind of things. And BJ Finney has, certainly has optimal pass protection numbers. And I don't have them in front of me to be honest, but I know they're really good and, and I've had them before. And, and with, when you're talking about having the best quarterback in football behind center, you want to have guys that know how to protect, protect him because heaven knows we know that the offensive lines in the last five, six years have not been great at protecting the Seattle's most prized athlete and Russell Wilson. So having a guy like BJ Finney, who's known for his pass pro certainly bodes well for him, but yeah, it's, it's now or never for Ethan Posick. But again, which one would you rather have experience in the system or just overall experience playing in the NFL? One of those things where you just you can't understate the power of desperation, though. That might be what lifts up Ethan Posick here. As you mentioned, it's now or never. He's been injured the last couple of years. He knows this is going to be his last chance with the Seahawks. Maybe that's what it takes for him to have a breakout training camp here and an opportunity to push B.J. Finney for that starting spot. But I think Finney is the guy on week one. Russell Wilson even name-dropped him today when he was talking starting lineups. So – I absolutely think that B.J. Finney is going to be the starter. He gave up two sacks and over 1,000 offensive snaps, according to Pro Football Focus, over the last four years. So when he's been in the lineup, he has been rock solid protecting his quarterback. The Seahawks absolutely need that. So I think Finney is still the guy there. Let's talk defense now. You want to talk about contrasting playing styles, body types, you name it, the nickel cornerback spot, Marquise Blair, or Ugo Amadi? Oh, yeah, they are pretty different. I mean, you got Marquise Blair, who's the thumper. He's got a four four. He's four four eight and six foot. He's got a four four eight speed and six foot one, nearly two hundred pounds. I mean, really, the the Seahawks love safeties that are built like that. And he is pretty unrefined as a tackler, which I know for the, for the Seahawks is pretty important to be refined as a tackler. And Ugo Amadi. You know, actually has a has slightly slower 40 times smaller build at 5'9", um, but can just do a lot more, I think. He's more versatile, and you, you saw that immediately when he when he was brought into the team after the draft is they had him at safety, they had him at slot corner, and they clearly thought very highly of his versatility, whereas Blair, he's kind of sitting maybe a bit behind Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams right now. Maybe they'll, they'll sneak him in with a third, a third safety, a big nickel set, but um, I think that the versatility, I probably would take Amadi. I'm, I'm a big Amadi fan. I watched a lot of Amadi when he was in Oregon. And I was like, he was one of those guys like, man, this guy's everywhere. He's doing all these, all these kinds of things in return, special teams, can play several different defensive positions. I just like the versatility. I'm a huge fan of that. And I, I think just Amadi offers more of that. So I'm going to cheat the system a little bit in our game. I know I'm supposed to pick one or the other, but why can't we say this and that? Because I think both these guys are going to play significant snaps in the nickel. They're just going to be used differently because of their playing styles. And it's interesting, when you go back and look at the pre-draft workouts for Marquise Blair and Ugo Amadi coming out of college in 2019, both being really good players in the Pac-12, Blair actually had the significantly faster three-cone time, which to me is the most important drill when you're trying to evaluate nickel corner candidates because it displays their change of direction their quickness and so he had an advantage there over Ugo Amadi and obviously Amadi is a fantastic blitzer he's a really solid tackler he's a guy you can move all over the field you know you're going to get maximum effort from him 
He's not the big hitter, though, that Marquise Blair is. And Blair obviously has more size. He's much taller, so he's a better matchup against tight ends. I think Marquise Blair is going to be used a lot like they used Akeem King a few years ago when they were playing him in their dime and their bandit packages when they had seven defensive backs on the field. I think you're going to see a lot of, t- a lot of plays out there where Pete Carroll and Ken Norton Jr. are going to find ways to have all three of those safeties on the field together. To make that happen, Marquise Blair has to be able to settle in at that nickel spot, and I think it's a little less for him to grasp you know, last year he was having issues trying to figure out the entire defensive playbook. You can ease him along a little bit by saying, we're going to get you this many snaps a game where you are playing that nickel cornerback spot. You're getting valuable NFL reps, and then we can continue to work with you as a safety as well. And then Amadi can be out there against speedy slot receivers. You, you can put him out there uh, as a blitzer. As I mentioned, that's something that he's really good at. I think it's a distinct advantage that he has over Marquise Blair with those nickel corner blitzes. And so you can do different sub packages with both of these guys. And so I don't think this is a case where one guy wins the job and another guy doesn't play. I think both of them are going to play meaningful snaps in different types of sub packages for the Seahawks. Now let's talk cornerback really quick. You kind of hinted at this last quarter. There is a faction of our listeners that I've noticed. Uh, There's an anti-Trey Flowers group, and I don't know where it emerged from, but anytime that we mention a, a competition between Quentin Dunbar and Trey Flowers, this group comes out and says, there's no way that Trey Flowers has any chance to, to win this job. Quentin Dunbar is a huge upgrade over him. And maybe that's the case, but I think you and I can both agree when you look at the stats and you look at the film, Flowers had plenty of, as you mentioned earlier, clunkers. He had games where he really struggled. But again, he has played the cornerback position for two years. He was a safety in college. He's still learning the position. And there were a lot of other games where he really balled out there and played outstanding football. And so I think Pete Carroll's hinted at it. It's too early to be given up on this kid. We've seen flashes where he can be a really good corner in this league. And he's been there the last couple of days. Dunbar hasn't been on the field yet. Dunbar's had the legal issues that he was dealing with that now he's been rid of. But certainly that has been something that's been a distraction for him learning a new scheme, you name it, I think Flowers is still going to have a legitimate opportunity, at least early in the season, to play meaningful snaps and maybe even start. If you look at his him being Trey Flowers' game logs from last year, yes, he was pretty up and down, as any young player would be. But if, if the Seahawks can get the Trey Flowers they had against, say, the Browns, the Ravens, or the Eagles, especially the one against the Eagles. I want to, I want to visit that game, the, the first game, the one in the regular season. You know, the one that won 17-9. Oh, wait, they won both 17-9. Anyway, um, he had 11 targets, 11 targets his way in that game, which only one of the game was more than that. It was the first game against the Bengals. And the completions, yeah, it was seven completions, so they were seven for 11. He did have an interception, but held Eagles to a 38.8 passer rating and made seven tackles and missed just one. So he, he played a really good game. And, and then against the Ravens, didn't miss any tackles and was targeted five times for a 47.9 rating. And against the Browns, also didn't miss any tackles with an 11.1 rating on Baker Mayfield. So there are some really good games hidden in there. 
And I think if they can get that version of Trey Flowers, Quentin Dunbar better be on his best game because Trey Flowers is coming. And, and we know that Pete Carroll is going to be preaching that competition. Oh, yeah. He always has and always will. And, you know, obviously they traded for Dunbar viewing him as a starter across from Griffith, and he was supposed to be the guy. But if Trey Flowers comes in and exceeds expectations, you're not going to see Pete Carroll complaining about that. This is a great chance to say, hey, we didn't think that you ended the year on a strong note. We're going to bring somebody else in that maybe can do the job better. How are you going to respond to that? And so this is going to be a really interesting training camp for him, especially, as I said, given the circumstances with Dunbar. I still think this is Dunbar's job to lose. I think he is a superior player. But I also think that Trey Flowers is much better than a lot of Seahawks fans are willing to admit, and he has played a lot of really good football for them as well. So he is going to get a chance to compete here. This is not coach speak where Pete Carroll's just saying he's going to compete just to say it. These two are going to be competing for reps there at that starting position opposite of Griffin. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Nick at Nick Lee 51. Just make sure you're ready for a lot of San Diego Padres content this time of year. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is by going to our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. When we come back next week, we're going to break down Sunday's practice. The Seahawks are going to be transitioning to helmets and shoulder pads, a lot more team offense versus defense as well. So we'll really get an idea, start to get an idea of what this roster and what this football team is going to look like going into the 2020 season. Enjoy your weekend. Go Hawks.